0: You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased that you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. You can also find every podcast at the League website, whose address is www lwv-bmc.org once again more slowly lwv-bmc.org today's guest is Michael Hicks who is distinguished professor of economics and business research at Indiana's Ball State University his work has appeared not only in scholarly sources but also in such media as Rolling Stone yes I said Rolling Stone New York Times Wall Street Journal, MSNBC, NPR, and Fox Business News. And today, I hope Dr. Hicks will tell us some things that Hoosiers ought to know about public policy, schools, and economic development. Okay. First off, it's good to be uh, here, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, glad to see you here. Uh, first, I'd like you to talk a bit about state support of public schools. I've heard—I think I got it from something I read—that from you, that back in 2019, 2020, state support of Indiana's public schools fell by $88 million, which seemed like a big number to me, and largely perhaps because of school choice. And I also heard that this reflects our legislature's general hostility to public education. Please comment on this.
1: Well, uh, you know, that's a great question. If we go back even farther, Uh, Let's go back to 2000, before school choice. uh, And as we move forward, 2007, 2008, the state took over 100 percent of operational funding of schools. And then between and at the same time, uh, introduced school choice allowed uh, a limited voucher program. It created an expanded charter schools, which first started in 2000, 2001, and then added a voucher program to private schools, which slowly grew. Um, And indeed by 2019, the state was allocating about $80 million to uh, voucher programs and and other charters. Both of those programs are a little bit less expensive than a traditional uh, school, but at at the same time, enrollment share of students in traditional public schools remained pretty solid. In fact, it's higher now than it was back in 2000 before school choice started. So the real challenge is, did this funding really come out of the pockets of public schools? Um, uh, and that's that's question one. The second one, is that the real problem? So let me address these two it's it's kind of a challenge. We don't know how many of those kids who were receiving vouchers back in 2018, 19 would have gone to, to public schools. Um, private schools price discriminate in, in the sense that they typically charge less for four students to, to attend those schools. And so uh, it could be that a number of those kids would have gone to public schools. Um, but the the big point is that if you look at overall enrollment, a little over a million kids in Indiana schools, that taxpayers are sub are paying for fully or partially. That eighty million dollars is a tiny amount of money. Um, the total spending per student is going to be about ten thousand dollars, state and federal, per school. So that 80, 80 that's eighty dollars a kid. So it's a it's it's you know less than a percent of what um, but federal, state, and local taxpayers are spending on schools here in Indiana. The the bigger challenge is that beginning right after the Great Recession in 2010, Indiana held its uh, funding constant in inflation adjusted terms as our economy expanded. And so w- we are spending about a third less on education of all types uh, out of our gross domestic product, the size of our economy, as we were doing in 2010. And so, if we were still spending the amount of money that we were had been spending back in 2010 on schools, both both you know private voucher programs, public schools, and charter schools, then that'd be close to two billion dollars more per year, uh, which is close to two thousand dollars per student more. So I've, I've tried to remind people if you're thinking about where the funding challenges are coming in public education, it's the fact that we have really Frozen what we're spending on schools, and we're taking all the extra tax dollars we get, and we're we're spending them on workforce development. We're increasing spending on family and social services. We're increasing Medicaid funding. We're increasing economic development tax incentives. So all of those things are really evidence of of problems in underlying education. And so what we're doing is instead of trying to spend money to mitigate. Potential long-term economic conditions, uh, or to, to to remedy shortfalls in educational attainment, we're spending money to mitigate the effect of shortfalls in educational attainment. And I think that's the that's the bigger problem than haggling about uh, charters or vouchers, which are really a a fairly small share of of overall student enrollment in Indiana.
0: Okay, well that's good to know. Uh, let's talk a bit about the concept of fair school funding. What is fair school funding, in your opinion? And in your opinion, does Indiana achieve fair funding for its schools?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, economists are poorly poised to answer questions of fairness. But I will say we do a pretty good job on the state side operational funding. Indiana is a state that 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 has a base funding level for every student, and then they have two other two big extra tranches of money. One is aimed at poorer schools. And they measure poorness by, you know, a three metric measure, um, uh, the number of students on free and reduced lunch, number on Medicaid, uh, or me- and then the number of kids who are in foster care. And so that's the complexity formula. And that really goes to much higher levels. So the the state spends the least money per student in Carmel schools and the most money per student in Gary schools. Hmm. And then the second component of this is, and, and federal government follows a similar formulary that puts more money into poorer schools. So we do a pretty good job of that. What we what we still do is pay for transportation of students and building facilities through property taxes, which are less equally distributed uh, between places. But I do think Indiana does a pretty good job of aiming money. Towards poor students, it's it's th- there's still a question whether that's enough to fully mitigate the effects of poverty, or they or not uh, even for uh, more affluent school corporations. If there isn't a challenge, and I think the evidence is that we're seeing a lot of schools, thirty uh, some now that have had referendum to spend more money on operation. That there's growing belief that the there needs to be more money on spent on public education around the state.
0: I see. Uh, what can you tell us about the impact of public schools uh, on a community's uh, economic development?
1: So that's uh, that's the key. To the question to an economist is, what is this key public service doing to to make you better off? And um, I've written an awful lot about this. I'll just cut right to the chase. Without really top-notch public schools, it's virtually impossible to grow an economy. Population growth in Indiana is concentrated amongst the twenty percent or so of top-ranked schools, and if you look at just the grades, 2016, 2017 is the last year we graded schools, the only school corporations that saw enrollment growth were A schools. So the other 90% of school corporations saw actual decline. So across the state, we have 290 school corporations. About half are losing students. The smaller half, it's 70, 80%. And there's no natural growth in those places. So if a, one school is growing, it's mostly because they're attracting students from adjacent or proximal school corporations because they're performing better. And so, uh, key to attracting people and attracting businesses are going to be having a, access to an above average school corporation. Indiana just doesn't have a ton of those that are nationally competitive on the sort of measures that families are likely to look but there's also the the su- the supply side effect it, the 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 people who are most lo- likely to stay in a community um are people who grew up there and so if you have low levels of educational attainment what you're what you're what you're really doing is leaving for more, more poorly educated people in your community and not uh educating people who are likely to come back to it. And so from a, both the demand side and a supply side, schools are the key to economic growth. And And I think um, places that are struggling in Indiana, uh, it's easy to identify right away where the problem is. And 99 out of 100 times, it's a school corporation that is just not acting as a magnet for new families.
0: Let me ask you directly, let's suppose I'm a, a business person and I'm trying to decide where to locate my business? Am I likely to worry about the expected population of educated workers?
1: Absolutely. Um, and if you're more importantly, if you're a type of business that we really need in Indiana, which is one that is going to pay above average wages, it's going to have above average benefits, it's going to be more Ah, uh, less volatile, it's going to be more uh, diversify our manufacturing intensive economy. Those businesses are solely interested in the availability of educated workers. So, if you're going to bring a value-added manufacturing uh, a- agricultural firm, so somebody's going to take the squeak out of a pig or make tomatoes, educational attainment's not as important. They'll find people with uh high school dropouts or high school graduates and they can train them to work there. But we're talking about a very small number of 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 businesses like that that are likely to come to Indiana where we we where the growth would be in the one community that's really growing which is Central Indiana uh, then that's going to be primarily businesses that cater to uh, college graduates or have or primarily employed college graduates. Just important to know, we have good national data from 1992 to the present. 81% of all the net job growth has gone to people with a four-year degree or higher. The other 19% with people who have been to college or have an associate's degree. For the other two cohorts of Americans, college high school graduates or less, there are fewer jobs now than there were 30 years ago, and and so th- that reflects the changing demand for labor in the United States that really values higher education. So without you know without schools that are going to send people to college, prepare people for college, and attract families who have been to college. Um, communities are really at some risk of, of not growing.
0: Okay. Let me provide a little bit of background for my next question. Um, I went to a three-room country grammar school in California. Thank you forever, Miss Miss Oya, for everything you did for me there, wherever you are. And my question then is, what's been happening lately to education in rural Indiana?
1: So, um, my father, who's your vintage, graduated from a two-room schoolhouse uh, in in Rome, Indiana as well, um, got out with 26 classmates, uh, I think two or three went off to get doctoral degrees or MDs. Um, in, in rural Indiana, we've failed to see the sort of growing population that the urban parts of the state have seen. And in recent decades, it's been a slow decline. Um, And so for the most rural places, what that means is fewer students, more older folks uh, like me uh, who are past their child raising years and a much smaller school corporation. So what does that do to a community? Well, uh, the overhead costs of running a school corporation or a school are pretty high. And a million dollars for a school corporation, and the cost of providing the most important instructional components, which are really the high school level, the STEM courses, the AP calculus, those sorts of things, are are very high. Um, the cost of having a teacher in an AP STEM class is probably twice of an early or an elementary school teacher, just because of the extra certification, the extra cost of the facilities, and the like. And so smaller schools in Indiana, uh, about 150 of them have corporations that are under 2,000 students, have done a pretty poor job of providing that broad set of college prep classes. They send kids to college at a lower rate. There are 60 school corporations, about 20% in the state that offer no advanced placement STEM classes, which essentially means that those schools are telling Uh, Ball State, IU, Purdue, IUPUI, Notre Dame, um, Indiana State, uh, USI, that they're not interested uh, in uh, sending kids to nursing programs, engineering programs, business programs, science, because all of those disciplines require free college prep in advanced placement, particularly calculus and the physical sciences. And so... I think it's really time that those smaller school corporations wrestle with the fact that once you get to be too small and your growth prospects are are negative for the next generation or two, that you're going to have to figure out some way of providing those college prep courses or nobody's going to move to your school corporation. And the kids that graduate there are not going to be ready for nursing programs or engineering programs or medical school. And so if you send them to college because – You know, we have pretty good geographic representation at these state schools. Their probability of being successful there is much lower. So it's time to sort of draw the, trace that line between poor secondary prep, pre-secondary prep or secondary prep, and the number of, you know, the nursing shortage that is ubiquitous across rural Indiana. So I think that's really part of the, the fundamental problem devolves back to education.
0: Okay, let's circle back just a little bit. Let me ask you about Indiana's voucher program and how it's affected communities.
1: Right. So the voucher program in Indiana uh, has gone through several iterations. Uh, it started off with um, during the Pence administration, where you could only take a voucher if you were leaving. You'd already been enrolled in a in a pro- public school that had a fairly small effect. They'd expanded to students who were coming into a public to a, a private school. So it got kids who might have gone to a parochial or private school anyway. Um, and then it's been expanded over the past few years to essentially Virtually all families, a uh, family of four with $200,000 income is, is, has a voucher available for them. Um, and what that has done, is, it, ironically, it has seen the decline in the overall suite of um, uh, school choice has caused a precipitous decline in private school enrollment. So it was about 12% of students back in 2000. That's about 5 or 6% of students, about 4% now have um, some sort of uh, voucher that's going to expand in the next few years. So what's happened when school choice came about is that there was an exodus of kids out of parochial or other private schools into adjacent uh, public, traditional public schools. Because with school choice, that was the big the big choice has been not to go to a charter school, not to go to a private school, but to choose to go to an adjacent public school. That's been the, the single biggest use of school choice, other than the obvious one, which is household location decisions, which are. Uh, most heavily influenced by local public schools. So so it hasn't been deleterious in the sense that uh, it's caused an exodus. The overall school choice has caused big migration to other local public schools, but there are still winners and losers there. So poor performing local public schools have lost students. High performing public schools have gained students.
0: I see. Uh, let me ask you, Do we have any hard data on the impact of fair school funding on the quality of life and even the potential for crime in a community?
1: Right. So the the there's very good evidence uh, that has been uh, subject to repeated analysis for 30 or 40 years. My colleagues and I extended it down to the county level across the U.S. in in a study that we did in 2019. And, and we were several iterations into it that the single biggest factor on quality of life decisions for households is, the biggest predictor of quality of life is is the share of GDP spent on local schools local mm. public schools wow and so that and and it makes sense right because the other micro studies that look for example at home prices uh, find that 30% of a home price is determined by the school corporation that it's in. So you take two identical homes, you put one in an A school, you put another one in an F school, that home, if it's a $100,000 home, the price would go at the national average, it would it could range by you know, $130,000 in the good school corporation, 70 to And so it makes sense that the households are really valuing this when they locate there. And we're not the only people to find that. We, we extend it to local uh, it's uh, down at the county level. Other people have done micro studies of it. Other people have looked at metro areas. So that's the big driver of quality of life and attraction. And that's the big piece that Indiana misses. Indiana is pretty good at the infrastructure and working on parks. We had great park systems. We have you know, a lot of local trail systems. We, care, It's easy to start a business if you want to start a brewery to do things like that. What we really miss is the funding for, for schools, uh, we have school choice, which is valued. School choice is a valued part of quality of life for some families. They want options even if they choose the local public school. The real challenge is that funding element is missing in a lot of Indiana places, which would be instrumental in improving outcomes. Um, there, It's a more tenuous link to crime. But remember, crime is... Uh, gonna be crowded out by higher housing costs also so if you have a a place that schools are performing well you tend not to have as much crime as well but the causal mechanism of school funding to do that is is not as clearly identified
0: okay thanks sounds pretty solid to me one final question uh, how does school funding affect communities of color
1: right so um here in Indiana uh, the We have uh, a couple, three school corporations that are heavily African-American. We have a dozen or so that have extraordinarily high Hispanic populations, but even in, in 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 what are often thought of as traditional urban schools, they're rarely majority African-American. So Muncie, for example, is uh, the state's taken over Muncie schools, given it to Ball State to manage, that's a 30% African-American school. It's still primarily a poor white school. Um, The the funding formula flows to poverty, not to race. So if you're poor, you're gonna get more money, whether it's in, 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 you know, Gary schools or Muncie schools, I will say that the one very clear outcome of school choice is that it's heavily used in the more less well-performing places. So Gary schools, 62% of students who reside within Gary Public School Corporation have taken school choice to go to private schools, charter schools that are not affiliated with Their public school system or adjacent school corporations. Here in Muncie, it's about 42%. It's about a third of kids in Indianapolis schools. So school choice has given students in those areas a lot more options than they had before 2000 when we didn't have school choice. Um, And that uh, presumably frees up additional revenues because those those now there those school corporations get the same amount of property tax dollars as they had beforehand, but it's just spread over a substantially smaller footprint of students. So it's not there's not a clear answer about what it what it what it does here. But with the money going to students, following students, and then the money uh, sort of predicated on the Poverty mix of that school corporation, there there tends to be money following kids, even in, even if they're impoverished, going from one school to another. Um, that that is really that equilibrating function of sending money to schools. That it it, it you know it sort of does a, a a pretty good job of following them. Again, I don't think we're spending enough on public education, but in terms of equalizing or having more money going to places that where the educational challenges are just harder because of poverty, I think Indiana does a better job than most states.
0: Okay. Well, Professor Hicks, thank you so much for a very informative conversation this afternoon. And to our radio audience, thanks for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that's fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Becky, can you tell us something about next month's guest? Sure. We are really excited to welcome Kelly DeBecky and Karen Jepson-Innes of the Wonder Lab. They're going to be here to talk about the importance of science education. So we're excited about that. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dr. Hicks.
1: It's Good to be with you.